0: Hello and welcome to the 37signals podcast, I'm Matt Linderman, we're doing a Programmer's Roundtable here at our offices in 37signals, why don't you guys introduce yourselves.
1: I'm Jeremy Kemper. I'm Jameis Buck.
0: And I'm Jeff Hardy. Alright, let's get into the questions. These are questions from readers at Signal versus Noise, and someone named Devang Kamdar asks, what's a typical workday like?
2: I'll go. Uh, typical workday. I wake up slow. I want to get up and have like at least an hour, two hours before I get online. I think we all sort of are online by ten in the morning, but we're all in different time zones. I'm in the eastern time zone. So I'm usually online by ten, but there's no hard start time that we're all you know, in our campfire. So I wake up, I sit around, I join the campfire, and then I you know, sort of find Wait until I, you have a free block of time and decide what I'm going to work on and work on it. I usually sort of cycle on and off uh in the day. I don't really get too focused on anything and I do most of my work at night where you can get like you know a three or a four hour uninterrupted block and I find I can get more done in that time than I can in like a whole day.
1: I try and stick to the traditional you know eight to five block. Um mostly because I have kids and I like to spend time with my family after, you know, the evenings. Um, and then in the, the late evenings, I, I like to work on my own projects. But so, you know, I'll wake up in the morning, um, log in, check email, do that for about a half hour and then um, look at the list, what needs to be done, what tasks are still open, what's what's on my plate and start working through
3: it. Yeah, usually, I wake up pretty fast. I'm, thinking about kind of what's on my plate what was left over from yesterday um i try to clear out distractions early like i read through email or triage it and mark things as read um, and then joining campfire is kind of like coming into the office all three of us mm-hmm. are, re- are remote um so open campfire it's kind of the beginning of the work day scroll back and see what other people have been up to i'm in a shifted time zone so i'm i'm behind by two or three hours um <coughs> So see what's going on and just get to work. Um, I usually try to knock off early but things will will drag on also Um, but generally try to keep a normal work day.
0: seems like it's more common for you to commit stuff at night sometimes is that do you feel like you can get more done when you're just sort of on your own? I definitely
3: can. I try to avoid um, too many late nights. I have the same thing where I having a four hour block at night and nothing is happening there's no claims on your time it's just kind of like and you have a little bit of a, a flow state there where um, and also my my own my mental processes are kind of settled down I'm not feeling distractible mm-hmm. um, one thing that I really noticed during the day and the day to day work I'll, I'll work in about half hour bursts and um, I work at a standing desk so you can just walk away. It's one thing I notice when I don't really sit down much anymore, but when I was sitting and the natural thing to do when your mind starts to wander and your, your attention is, you're losing your kind of attentional focus, um, is to just do random crap on your computer. And so check your email or something. And being able to leave the computer um, kind of just stops it right in its tracks. So go outside, make a cup of coffee. just get away and just do some other task, you kind know, of refresh your brain and come back to the computer and you've had that time to let things simmer a little bit and you're ready to go again.
0: Um, Devang also asks, how do you protect intellectual property, especially proprietary code? From whom? <laughs> <coughs> yeah, we keep all our code on,
2: uh, like all our 37signal stuff is on an encrypted volume the idea is that if our laptops ever got stolen, they'd be useless to anybody. We wouldn't be able to get it, our stuff. Um, we host our repositories ourselves internally. You know what I mean?
1: um, we use NDAs where necessary, where we've got people coming in from the outside. We don't do that very often, though.
3: Yeah. Um. and Most of it's really that lockdown of our own personal stuff. <laughs> it's kind of a pain right. in the butt. And you have to mount an encrypted volume. You've got to make sure that... Everything that could be sensitive mm-hmm. is actually being stored on that volume. So if you're doing, uh, if you're using iChat and you have the transcripts on, they need to be going to the right place. So there are a lot of little things that you need mm-hmm. to check if you're actually trying to be secure. And It's very difficult. And we sort of, we have a checklist that we keep in
2: our backpack. That's like, make sure your chats on the encrypted volume, your mail, um, make sure you're using
1: code and uh, use SSL with
2: Gmail. Mm-hmm
1: and your, make sure your your wireless network is secure,
3: things like that. Definitely have a password to get into your computer, lock a screensaver. Mm-hmm. Right. And looking from the outside at some of these things, I mean, it's like we're wo- working in the secure vault, and it seems a little ridiculous to me sometimes. But <laughs> I don't know what the real threats are or what could actually happen. I mean, the whole idea is, you know, what if the, the code to Basecamp got out in the wild? You know, it becomes a thought experiment. I don't know what would happen. But thankfully we have a a reasonable checklist and being able to go down just and make sure that your computer is secure. And once it's set up, it's not too
1: bad. It's kind of like Jeremy said, it's kind of a hassle to have to mount the volume, but Knox that program makes it fairly straightforward.
0: Mark Dodwell wants to, well, I'll read you his question. Fixtures get bad press, but Rails tests use them by default. Do you use fixtures? And if so, how well do they work for you?
2: We do use them. Uh, we don't use any other fixture replacements.
1: Well, Sortfolio does. Oh, it does? Um, yeah, I, I can't remember what it's called. Factory Girl? or is that the, oh. Yeah, one of
3: these object creation things. And it's similar to fixtures, except they're not static. You're actually writing it in code. Um, yeah, but I that's using that as... <coughs> We, we generally avoid good. trying to add fixtures. And one thing <coughs> we notice in our code is that we'll, we'll reuse fixtures as much as possible, and often we'll be just using them kind of as a foundation and uh, either modifying them for a test or maybe even seen in, in tests, we'll create new stuff. And so making a fixture in line rather than mm-hmm. adding static global fixtures for everything, um, we're tightly scoping things a bit more. But again, we're not using a specialized library uh, for that. That's just plain Ruby code, mm-hmm. and the fixtures that we have
2: been in the code for like years, like Basecamp's fixtures, their names are familiar to us. We know that you can load up, you know, ask for this username, and uh, this guy's an admin, and this guy's not, and so it's just sort of natural to, you know, it's all it's committed to memory. And probably if I was starting over, and we have a pretty big set of fixtures for something like Basecamp, and you know they, they're all consistent. Um, you know the relationships make sense, and if I was starting over, yeah, maybe I wouldn't invest so much time in fixtures. But they're they're um, they're there and they work and
1: when they're consistent and when they already exist, they're a boon. But uh, yeah, adding new ones is kind of painful and yeah, I mean there's a reason they have bad a bad press, but I don't know that there's anything out there that doesn't have drawbacks. So
2: one interesting thing that we do we, we use fixtures to load up data that we can use locally. And one interesting thing that we do that I don't know how easily we'd be able to accomplish in other ways is that we share fixtures. So 37ID, for example, and Queen B, our billing system, we share the fixtures between plugins so that they're all consistent. So that when, you know, uh, a user in Basecamp looks to its uh, 37ID user, those are all shared across apps. And that makes it possible to load up all the fixtures and have, you know, a working user across all apps And that would be kind of hard to coordinate,
3: you know, without that. Yeah, that really bleeds into our development environment where we have this kind of domain knowledge for testing where these certain fixtures are always present, but they're also always present for development. Like when you boot up an app, you have an existing environment. Everything works together. Right.
0: Philippe Lang wants to know, do all members of the team work with the same environment, like TextMate? TextMate and Shell on a Mac, or do some of you use other tools also, like Eclipse or Windows?
2: Nobody, nobody uses, uses Windows, nobody, nobody uses, uses Eclipse.
3: Eclipse. Windows, fired. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, everybody uses Macs and a variety yeah. of different tools, I think the only big variance is our choice in text editors. Mm-hmm. Right, TextMate or Vim, and I think S- I, I use Bash. Shell, Bash, Sam is is uses uh, ZSH. 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 Does
2: anybody else use a different shell? Uh, I think don't
3: all
2: so. Bash and i Bash also. I've used ZSH in the past, but honestly, Bash is just so available that it's
0: just easier to use Bash. Alright, Louis Molina wants to know do you use any code generation technique apart from the scaffolding in Ruby?
3: Just typing.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we p- generate code where it's necessary to cut down on repetition, like I think about our server configs. You know, like they'll you know, rather than like, you know, specify everything manually, you know, we'll generate it. um, We, I mean, not really for bootstrapping code, we don't really, I don't use the generators in Rails. I usually will just, you know, make a new file.
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah, I haven't used the generators in a long time. We've, I don't know that we've used the scaffolding in Rails ever.
3: Ever, yeah. Scaffolding is great for getting started. Uh, if you're getting started as a Rails developer um, and it's a good way of uh, spiking out a little app, but generally you're going to change it so heavily, immediately, that uh, after you've worked with it for a while, it's just as simple to start from scratch. You know where you're headed, you know what you want, and especially with uh, RESTful routes and controllers and Rails, like starting from the routes file and saying, I'm going to add this resource, and you can just go down from there. For this resource, I need this controller. I know what actions are going to be in that controller. I know that I want to expose an API for one. So that whole model is already there, and Ruby is so concise that typing it out is and it's quicker than taking a scaffold with everything in it and paring it back down.
2: Right. I use the generator for migrations. Script to, generate migration. You get the timestamp. And sometimes I'll
3: specify extra things on the, you know,
2: arguments to like, you know, set
3: my columns. Yeah, you know, it's me. funny because I'll I'll make migrations. and I'll just make up a timestamp. <laughs> <Do> you? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you can just you yeah. can copy an old file, and you'll notice that the uh, hours, minutes, seconds are the same as the yeah. little, but the date has changed. <laughs> Leandro
0: Lopez asks if you use any kind of master-slave database replication schema with Rails. Could you tell us which plugin gem you're using for it?
3: Well, I think he was asking about read-write splitting. So we do master-slave, but it's for backups, and it's for hot standby. (coughs) We did uh, read-write splitting for 37 Signals ID when we moved data centers. So as our applications moved from one data center to another, about 80 milliseconds of ping apart, um, we rely so heavily on talking to that database, that shared database. that to maintain performance, we split reads to a local slave in the new data center, uh, and we didn't, we just used Ruby code. We looked at some tools, but almost too automated. We knew exactly where we wanted to use the master connection, where to do the writes, mm-hmm. and so rather than trying to, or having to cope with the uncertainty of whether the read, r- reads and writes are going to be split correctly we just used a little bit of Ruby code to establish a connection to the correct database in those exact places where we wanted them.
0: Alexandru wants to know, how do you decide when looking to add functionality whether to use an existing solution or roll your own? For example, the forum redesign. Was there any consideration given to existing platforms like Stack Exchange or did you pretty much know you were going to do it from scratch?
2: Sometimes just so much easier to do it from scratch. You might. I feel like you'd spend less time uh, just building the parts that you need than worrying about, you know, something else that probably does a bunch of stuff that you don't need. Uh, so we were able to do, like, the answers board really quickly. Um,
1: well, our original forum was based on another yeah. product, and it yeah, was a hassle just to just maintain. Beast. beast was great, but we needed to customize it a lot. And then once we customized it, it was so hard to bring it up to date with changes to Beast and... And it was just got to be kind of a, a
3: pain to, to keep it all up to date. And yeah, one thing that helps us to keep in mind is the actual effort that goes into building an application is fairly low. And uh, starting a new application is just, it's easy. And when you're thinking of the bigger conceptual picture, like I need a forum, it seems natural to go, I want to go to you know, a big box store and grab it off the shelf. So I'm looking at existing tools. <coughs> but then trying to customize that is just often too much work, where something like Answers we spiked out in a matter of weeks. It was a couple weeks. Mm-hmm. And everybody's seen the Rails uh, screencast. You can build a blog in 5, 15 minutes. Everybody knows you can build Basecamp in two weeks. So you know. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just it, it shouldn't be daunting to dig in and just make something that's exactly what you need.
0: Matt McCormick wants to know, how do you stay or how do you keep up your interest in a project or product? Generally, I get bored with projects after a few months.
1: Our, our team structure, I think, really helps yeah. helps that because we aren't stuck on anything for more than about two months um, with some exceptions. Like Sometimes there'll be a long running project where someone might be needed to, to stick around for another two months to pass on the information about the project to whoever's coming on next. But Um, Generally, we work on small things, quick iterations, two or three weeks maybe for a single feature and then you move on to another product even to add something there. So there's not a lot of opportunity now for getting bored with what you're working on.
2: Even before the team structure, I didn't find like we sort of naturally would do things in small chunks. I mean if you're getting bored then you're not doing good work, uh, you're not motivated and none of us want that. So we sort of have this built-in desire to, like, keep things small and shippable so that we can, you know, move on to something more exciting. So I don't really give myself much of a chance to get bored. If I'm bored or if I find myself starting to get bored, then I just, (laughs) you know, it means I got to stop. Like, what can I ship now and then how can I go on to the next thing that feels new?
3: I think that that feeling of being bored, and it's often, um, and there's a little bit of, like, self-entitlement, like... Your job should be like interesting you. I mean, (coughs) if you're bored, you're boring. Like you need to like think about what you're doing and like find excitement in it. It takes motivation. It takes energy and you've got to pour it in. And if you're not feeling it, you're not feeling motivated, then the answer probably isn't in the product you're working on or the code you're working on. It's about, it's in your approach to it and how you think about it, how you think about your life. I mean, there's probably other things going on.
0: Well, Jeremy, you did a lot of the work on 37 ID, which was probably like the biggest scope thing that 37 Signals has ever done. As far as it, it took what nearly a year, or yeah, that's so a,
3: a year of work.
0: Was that an issue for you as you were working on such a a, a big project? That's unusual for us. Was, was being bored definitely
3: was not an issue. Working on 37 Signals ID was was really interesting, and it touched all of our stuff. Um, we tried some new things and they worked out great. We tried some new things and they didn't work out. So having that process of Building something, learning from it, and doing something a little bit more ambitious than what we're accustomed to and was definitely cool. That was like that was really neat for us. as for me as a programmer and for us as a company tackling something like that. Um, there were struggles in there for me that I mean, were not boredom related. I and mean, having something go on for a year I and mean, it's a lot of pressure, um, and you want to deliver something, especially in a company where we're used to having those little quick feedbacks and. You get a quick win, get a quick win, get a quick win. And when you're building up to a big win uh, and you're missing all those quick wins, those are kind of programmer food. I mean, you want (laughs) to give those little treats out and uh, it's like a form of mental starvation where you're having to just kind of buckle down. And that buckling down is uh, uh, something I've seen other places I've worked where, uh, where there aren't as short iterations, where that's just more the status quo where you're accustomed to that's what it ought to feel like as a professional programmer. It's that somehow you shouldn't expect there to be joy or energy in what you're doing. It's more about you've got this deadline and you need to work at it. And it just kind of drains the life from what you're doing.
0: Vladimir Mitrovich wants to know if you were to start a new web business today like you did with Basecamp with little or no money, what setup would you use in terms of servers, version control, and deployment in order to get the business up and running quickly?
3: I would deploy on
2: Heroku. Yeah, I'd still use Git, GitHub, and it's pretty much the same stuff we're doing now. Like, you know, uh, I would not start. You know, I would not try to set up some advanced hosting environment. I'd go like Heroku's cheap and easy as possible. No, it's right. free to start. It yeah, is. you don't want to get bogged down in things that probably don't matter right away. Better to have something up and running fast. Uh, yeah, it seems like you don't need to worry about any of that stuff anymore. If it seems
3: it's really nice and easy now. It's definitely a red flag, and I would be looking for if if you're starting a new business and your your concerns are dominated by your development environment or by your deployment environment, you're being distracted. You're not working on your product. Worrying about the wrong thing. Yeah. If you don't have a product,
1: you shouldn't be worrying about deployment.
0: All right. Last question from Shannon Coffey. What kind of day-to-day interaction do you have with David and Jason? Are you coming up with ideas for products and improvements just as much as they are?
1: Coming up with the ideas, I don't think I am personally. Um, Jason and David are always thinking of like noticing where where the friction is in their processes and identifying, you know, we could do this or that or um, but when when they do propose an idea, when they're like, "Hey, we should work on something like this, that's when I think all the team kind of comes together and starts brainstorming and saying, "Yeah, and it could do this, or um this might not quite be feasible, but we could maybe do this instead, and we start um getting <coughs> getting the ideas going that way.
2: Right, I don't feel like David and Jason like sort of like bang a gavel and say, okay, gather around, this is the stuff that we want to do. It's still very much uh, you know, they might bring it up first, but it's still like a an open discussion. We'll all talk about stuff and as many ideas, lots of ideas float around and you know, not all of them get picked up and there's not sort of like a why didn't why didn't we run with this idea? It
3: usually doesn't matter. I feel like uh, when we're deciding what to do. Um, all of us are making small course corrections and making those little choices that add up to uh, our, our main direction. Um, but Jason and David, especially, are, are often the ones to propose a bigger leap, um, something riskier, something that will take more than one person's time, uh, where we can decide what to do with our own time. We're self-managing in that respect. Uh, but, when we want to do something that takes a whole takes a whole team's time or is going to take the whole company 's <coughs> time right. then that 's the kind of time investment that and we 're often unwilling to make, and they 're more bold about saying well let 's just do this
0: I think also given our structure. It's usually not a situation where it's like a blank slate and like, okay, what should we work on next? It's usually like, okay, there's 30 ideas all the time that are, you know, really good ideas and could be worked on. And it's more almost like an editing or curating
3: process of eliminating things as opposed to generating new ideas.
1: Yeah, definitely.
3: As far as interaction goes, I've I've noticed something pretty interesting. I mean, 37 Signals is very uh, design-oriented. We start with design and we make it work. And that's reflected in the way that we do our jobs. A lot of the the day-to-day interaction with with Jason um, is he's in rooms, in the campfire rooms where we're working, and he's giving feedback on what's happening so far, like a new design pops up and um, Jason Zimdars is looking for um, some feedback on where he's he's gone with the idea. but with programming, it doesn't really work that way. We're not popping up code in the campfire room and asking David to validate what we've done with our design. Um, so we kind of have more, a little bit more free reign. Like we're all collaboratively working on the same code, and so that validation of what we've chosen to do is happening a little more implicitly. Because next time you come to the, to come to some piece of code and you need to make a change, you're going to leave it prettier than you found it, and so. I mean, design's kind of the same way, but thats it's a longer process, whereas, um, or programming is a longer process as it slowly evolves and improves. But we don't have that, like, kind of, I guess the equivalent would be a, a daily code review.
1: Yeah, we don't, we don't do a lot of that. We do some voluntary ones, like if I'm confused about something or I'm not sure a particular approach I've done is good, I might... Jeff or Jeremy or David and just say, hey, here, here's what I've done. Can you can you check this and give me your yeah. opinion? Sanity check this. Yeah. And, and all
2: our commits go into our campfire room. So if a commit message looks interesting, it's very easy to just click the link and it shows up, you know, the diff shows up in a browser and you can say, ah, Jeremy just fixed that bug that was my fault. <laughs> you know, so there is, we are sort of reviewing each other's code. Uh, if somebody makes a commit and you're like, hmm, I think that might have a bug in it, you know, we'll say, hmm, I think that has a bug in it. (laughs) So, but we're not paying that close attention to it, you know, I don't review every single commit and there's no, things don't really need a formal review. Although we do tend to uh, make sure we ask for reviews of each other's migrations, things that are going to touch the data, things that seem like they could be potentially dangerous, right, you know, you just want to have a, just another set of eyes on it just to make sure.
1: It really comes down to we we trust and are confident in each other's abilities, you know, where we know that if someone commits something that they're doing their best work and, and they're confident. And
3: yeah, that's something that's easy to forget sometimes, working with the group that we have here and everybody trusts each other, like everybody can do a production deploy anytime. Mm-hmm. Everybody can commit anything anytime and it just naturally works. There's no need for you know, policy surrounding it. I guess another thing that affects that, I was <coughs> thinking about that the, uh, there's a lot of scrutiny of our design. Um, and I think we don't really need that as much with code because uh, things like automated tests. Like we know that our code works. That is kind of our automated scrutiny, like writing those tests. like It does what we know what we spec it out to do. All right, guys, thanks so much. I think this was
0: really informative, and uh, I appreciate it. Thanks, man. <laughs> thanks, man. Thanks, man. Uh, so you can go to 37signals.com slash podcast. We've got previous episodes there, related links, transcripts, and that's it. Bye.